Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Uh, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidence-based errata, E-R-R-A-T-A dot com. Okay, so let us get started tonight talking about Libyan desert glass. Um, now, of course, this might be one of those things where you have no idea what I'm talking about, but uh, you will probably, I hope at least, uh, have seen it once or twice without maybe knowing what it was. The most famous example of it is a glass-carved scarab beetle that sits in the center of a chest piece found in the tomb of King Tutankhamun. And so this is just a really remarkable um, piece of uh, celestial uh, history that has been created on the earth and um, you can still actually buy uh, Libyan glass so uh, you can actually still purchase it. Uh, I am seriously considering getting some myself actually uh, now that I found out that you can do that Uh, and so it is very cool. We identify Libyan desert glass as glass based on the material properties of it But in the ancient Egyptian mind, the glass and the stone are really closely linked, notes Dr. Catherine Larson, assistant curator of ancient glass at the Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. In fact, the ancient Egyptian word we have for glass that's preserved in hieroglyphic texts of the period actually means stone that pours. And so, yeah, that is very cool. And so the ancient Egyptians would probably have thought of the glass as any other semi-precious stone found in the area. Uh, Dr. Jane Cook, chief scientist at Corning, explains that glass happens when just the right ingredients are heated up and cooled down quickly. In this case, the heat came from a celestial object. About 20 million years ago, either a meteor impact or atmospheric explosion got to the desert part of the lower atmosphere, heated it up and fragmented and exploded, she said. It dumped a huge amount of heat, like in thousands of Fahrenheit degrees, into that portion of the desert, which was a relatively pure deposit of quartz sand. And it brought it up hot enough that it was able to liquefy for a short period of time. Because it was almost pure silica, it was able to to solidify without crystallizing, which is, of course, what made it glass rather than an actual geological crystal structured stone. Now, contaminants from the meteorite would have dissolved into the silica, and that is actually what affects the color and opacity of the glass. And so specimens actually range in a, um, have a fairly wide range. They go from a cloudy dark brown to uh, the more well-known and sought after uh, chartreuses and lemony yellows. Now, other meteor impact glasses do exist, but Libyan glass is considered to be the most spectacular. Now, the only other uh, kind of 
class that is sort of related to this um, is you may have heard before of trinitite. Uh, and so trinitite is glass that you find um, on the Trinity uh, nuclear testing site. So um, when they were doing nuclear testing in the at the Trini, Trinity site, it actually fused the uh, sand there into glass. And so um, people aren't supposed to take it away. And it was supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to be left there. And it's, you know, I think still radioactive, but um, people do have it, you can sometimes find it uh, in various places. So um, and that's also that's actually kind of usually a darker green. Um, this is more of a chartreuse lemony yellow. Um, and so yeah, that's the that's sort of the other version of this kind of glass that is created through um, basically huge amounts of heat and pressure because a atomic bomb is very similar, has a very similar profile when it comes to heat and pressure as a meteor strike, especially a large meteor strike. And so now we think that the glass formed around 29 million years ago. And again, it was nearly pure silica, which requires temperatures above 1600 degrees Celsius. So that's hot. Um, and so the glass contains rare high temperature minerals, including a form of quartz called cristabolite. It also contains grains of zircon and zirconia, a form of the mineral found in high temperature affected minerals. Now, as noted above, that was that research was from a little bit earlier, so uh, it was still sort of couching in terms of what might have caused it. Was it an actual meteor impact, or was the melting caused by an airburst from an asteroid um, or other object like a comet that burned up higher in the Earth's atmosphere? Um, so if you think about the most recent version of that is the um, Cherublinska um airburst that happened in Russia recently. And I don't know why I can't say that tonight, but I apologize for butchering it. But um, yeah, and so that was an airburst. And so it didn't actually end up impacting. It actually blew up in the atmosphere. And uh, there are plenty of pictures of it, uh, plenty of Russian uh, dash cam footage of it. Um, because one of those things about Russia is notoriously that everyone has a dash cam because apparently it's just the Wild West when you ride, when you drive in Russia. Um, but yeah, so it could have been that, except for the researchers have found evidence of certain minerals that are only created by an impact. Now, of course, finding this out has been hard. There has been, uh, it's been elusive because it's in the desert. Uh, and so it's hard to find an impact crater uh, because it would long since have been covered in sand dunes. Uh, so that was hard. So that made it hard to prove an impact. However, new research published in the journal Geology by researchers at Curtin University reports on the first evidence of high pressure damage, showing that the glass formed during a meteorite impact. So researchers have discovered an unusual mineral called redite in the samples of the glass. Well, kind of. <laughs> so redite, uh, or yeah, I'd say it's redite. Um, 
only forms during a meteorite impact, when atoms in the mineral zircon are forced into a tighter arrangement. Now, such high-pressure minerals can only be formed during an impact, rather than, again, during an airburst. Now, zircon is really interesting because it's used both for dating, uh, so you can use zircon crystals to date samples, um, but again, you can also use it to show evidence of shock deformation uh, from impacts. And so the zircon deforms in different ways depending on the intensity of the shock wave. At the highest intensities, redite is formed. Now, of course, I said initially that they sort of found redite because the only problem is that redite doesn't persist. At the highest intensities and in the uh, high temperatures, it actually reverts to zircon. And so because this was such a high impact, it reverts back to zir zircon. Now, the researchers were able to find its signature, though. They used a technique called electron backscatter diffraction in order to determine whether the redite was once present in the glass. They found distinctive orientations in the crystal zircon, which indicated the former presence of the redite. They looked at seven samples and found the distinctive orientation signature in all seven of the examples. The only reasonable explanation, therefore, is that it was a meteor impact. Now, of course, there are still unanswered questions, such as where is the source crater? Uh, where is it located? Uh, what size was it? Uh, is it even still there? It could have eroded away before the sand moved in, because, of course, um, that area wasn't always desert. Um, you know, in living memory of humans, that area was much more um, livable. It was had a much more um, wet and um, it was much more sort of marshland. And uh, there were actually lakes in North Africa, all over North Africa. And um, so if you go into places in the desert now, you can still find rock art where people were actually living. And it's because at that point when they were living there, there would have been, you know, marshlands and lakes and uh, actual livable areas rather than the barren desert that is there now. Um, and so climate change, uh, sort of natural climate change in this case happened. And so climate, the climate shifted and it became more arid in this area of the um, continent. And of course, there was also some some human issues that uh, have contributed to uh, the desertification of that area. But um, yeah, it definitely is really interesting to think that at one point, the Sahara was mostly full of like lakes and grasslands and uh, wetlands and things like that. It's very weird to think about nowadays when you see things uh and you see pictures of the desert, which is just, you know, sand as far as the eye can see. Um, but yeah, it was definitely not like that at one point. And of course, part of the problem is, is that you would think, usually think of an impact having a kind of distinctive circle. And so you would think maybe the glass would just have been in a distinctive circle. The problem is, of course, is that people have been picking it up for you know, at least a couple of thousand years. And also it is 
the dispersal of it is quite large um, because of shifting uh, sand, because of different patterns of things that happen as well. It's not, you know, because because the initial impact would have happened so long ago, there's no way to actually pinpoint it by sort of triangulating from where the glass is located. Um, but it's at least very good news uh, for this sort of mystery of it to be slightly solved, to know that it's almost certainly from an actual impact and not from a burst. So yeah, mostly the really cool thing about this is the object itself. Like if you've never looked at uh, Libyan desert glass, you should definitely look it up. Um, maybe even get yourself a little bit. Uh, some of the samples that I saw online were quite reasonably priced. Um, you know, obviously the more uh, clear it is, the more close to gem quality it is, the more expensive, expensive it's going to be. I saw some that were quite expensive. Um, and I, you know, but certainly looked worth it if you had the, that kind of money. <laughs> okay, so let us move on. And uh, let's move from natural space objects to unnatural space objects. <sighs> Okay, so um, I'm going to take a moment, and since this is a show about science and skepticism, I want to do a little bit of a disclosure here, because it's important to, uh, when you're talking about science, it's always important to note your possible conflicts of interest. And so I would just like to say that uh, this is a story about SpaceX. SpaceX is owned by Elon Musk, and I do not like Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> he is not someone who I think is a quirky genius. I think he is a really, really, really overrated teenager, basically, who uh, has more money than sense and who has been greatly overestimated. Um, he's a little bit of the, he's almost to me a little bit of the uh, David Foster Wallace of the tech world. And yes, I just took another swipe at another, uh, you know, great white genius from uh, many people's perspective. So I just want to lay that out there because it's important to be able to disclose your conflicts of interest. Uh, that's a really important thing to do in science. And, uh, but this is a legitimate story and it's not my opinion. I'm actually going to be telling you about other people's opinions, but I do, uh, want, I did want to put out that disclosure there. Okay. So SpaceX, SpaceX's newest scheme is to launch an armada of new satellites. The project is called Starlink Satellite Mega Constellation, uh, and it's it's meant to provide broadband internet service for a large swath of people, which I will admit would be a good idea if it was done right. However, the brightness of the satellites has astronomers worried. Given the amount of satellites that Musk wants to launch into the sky, a whopping 12,000 of them altogether, if the plan keep, continues to go as uh, it has been laid out, that's a lot of artificial light in the sky. And it's not actually artificial light. It's a lot of reflected uh, sunlight in the sky. <laughs> a lot of satellites in the sky at all times. And so, you know... <laughs> 
it's a little bit worrisome. Of course, Musk claimed on Twitter, and uh, this was actually the official uh, word of SpaceX when um, reporters asked SpaceX if they wanted to comment. Uh, they said, please refer to Elon Musk's Twitter. Um, so this is his official opinion, which is that, quote unquote, the satellites will have no material effect on discoveries in astronomy. However, <laughs> not all astronomers are convinced of that. It's going to become increasingly likely that the satellites will pass through the field of view and essentially contaminate your view of the universe. Darren Baskell, an outreach officer of physics and astronomy at the University of Sussex, told The Verge. And it's going to be really difficult to remove that contamination away from our observations. And so, of course, the problem is that seeing deep into space requires long exposure imaging, which can be for minutes or hours. And when a super bright object passes the field of vision, it blurs the image. If it was just a point in an image, that wouldn't be too bad, said Phil Bull, a theoretical cosmologist at Queen Mary University of London. You could just ignore the bit around that point. But because it's a big line going through your image, it really gets in the way. Now, there are already the occasional issue with streaks and others um, and already happening. And so it's not an unreasonable thing to to feel that if there's many more satellites out there, that these streaks are going to get more common. And unfortunately, it's not just SpaceX that wants to get in on this. Uh, companies that want to join this craziness include OneWeb, Telestat, Kepler Communications, and of course, Amazon. Sigh. So, the night sky is going to get a lot more cluttered and a lot brighter. Now, it won't be a problem everywhere all the time, but especially in the higher latitudes in summer, the satellites will still be visible throughout the night because they are high enough in the sky that they continue to reflect light from the sun. You can go into your backyard with some binoculars or even the naked eye, and you can see plenty of satellites whizzing around a few hours past dusk or before dawn, says Bull. It's really not like they just instantly switch off when the sun sets on Earth. And I know for certain I've, I've stood in my uh, you know, driveway and looked up and seen satellites whizzing all through the sky. Uh, they're very distinctive and they're very bright. Um, and of course, again, this isn't... Uh, it isn't that these satellites have lights on them. It's that most of them have solar uh, reflectors on them that are gathering light in order to power the actual satellite. So if you've ever seen pictures of satellites with these sort of um, sheets of sort of gold foil, that gold foil is usually a um, is usually an a um, is usually collecting sunlight and creating uh, electricity for, it's a, um, nope, I cannot think of the word. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, a solar panel. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a sort, sort of solar panel. Um, and so, yeah, that's the problem is that it's a shiny piece of metal foil that reflects light back towards the earth. And so that causes light pollution. <laughs> um, 
And so there's also concern that once there is a swarm of satellites orbiting, that they might run into one, e one another, for example, especially if they're from other from different companies. So that will also contribute to the problem of space junk. And so space junk is a really big problem right now. Um, we don't think about it very much. And it's kind of hard to quantify. But there's a lot of old space material um, or from satellites that have gone defunct from different space, um, from different shuttles and uh, rockets and things like that, where they've left boosters off and things. And there's just a lot of debris. And so, um, you know, there's always worries about what's already out there for space debris uh, in places like the ISS, for, in for instance, the International Space Station. And so, you know, if you've got things sitting out there and they potentially crash into each other, then you've got shrapnel that is potentially going to hurt, um, you know, the ISS or, you know, if it happens to be that a rocket is launching at that point, you could actually have collateral damage in that way. And it's just, it's very crazy. Um <laughs> And, you know, I mean, that sounds a little bit far-fetched, but in some ways it's not. Um, we know that there's already a lot of space junk and there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to deal with it because we are looking to put more satellites in orbit. And so those satellites are in danger of hitting space junk and being um, damaged. And so it's really, it's not a trivial uh, concern. And of course, the problem with satellites and objects like the ISS, again, the ISS also has that problem. So you've probably uh, at some point, uh, I used to have something on my watch that would tell me when the ISS was going overhead. And you can see it because again, it has these large solar panels that are collecting uh, sunlight, but also reflecting it back. And so that's a problem. Now, of course, Musk says that the uh, his solution to this problem is to suggest that the telescopes should simply be moved into orbit themselves. Of course, first off, that's way easier said than done. Uh, the Hubble has been doing yeoman's work uh, ever since it was fixed um, over the last few decades. But its replacement, the James Webb, has been plagued with overruns, delays, more overruns. Um, you know, I mean, at points, it seems in danger of simply being canceled because it's turned out to be way more expensive than uh, NASA budgeted for initially. And uh, of course, the current uh, people who control the purse aren't necessarily all that enthusiastic about uh, space uh, telescopes rather than things like going back to the moon, which uh, longtime listeners will know my uh, position on human space travel. But anyways, um, even if you get the James Webb up there, it's still not going to be able to be as large as telescopes that are available on the Earth. So in order to create telescopes with very large mirrors, you can't put those into space. It's much easier to do it on the Earth. 
taking these apertures off of the earth and putting them in space is not technically feasible right now, says Mary Knapp, a research scientist studying exoplanets at MIT's Haystack Observatory. And when and if it becomes so, it's very, very expensive. Much, much more expensive than the telescopes we have on the ground of similar size. And so even beyond this, the space-based telescopes will still have trouble with the satellites themselves. We see satellites in space-based observations, too, when the satellites are above the space telescope, says Knapp. So it's not just a ground-based observation problem. Now, the satellites have dimmed some as they have moved into higher orbits. Uh, the, the initial pictures were quite stunningly bright. Um, but that's still a problem. Now, Musk has suggested that SpaceX could tweak the orientation of the satellites to minimize the amount of glare. But of course, this is just the visual issue. This is just the issue with light pollution. Other astronomers are worried about the radio frequencies that the satellites will be transmitting on and that they might interfere with radio observations of the skies. And so the problem is, of course, that even if they try to avoid the bandwidths that the uh, radio telescopes are generally looking in, there is still bleeding into frequencies. You can't completely pull yourself out of a particular band when you're using radio frequencies. There's bleeding. And also, it's potentially that later on, when we develop new things, that astronomers could want some of the bands that it's already using. As technology has progressed, the ability to look at the universe at all frequencies has expanded greatly, notes Colin Lonsdale, the director of the MIT Haystack Observatory. So what something like Starlink will do, it'll shut off some of those frequencies from the possibility of study. Now, ultimately, I, I totally will concede that better access to the internet for the world is a worthy goal, except there's a problem here specifically, the lack of communication and accountability from SpaceX to the ast astronomical community. There's been a long and very productive partnership between astronomers and the technology side of things to try and find solutions that work for everyone, says Bull. As far as I'm aware, that just hasn't happened here. And to be honest, it's unusual to have not consulted on this kind of impact. So yeah, um, just just say no to Elon Musk. Um, I think that's my mantra uh, for the night is just say no. Um, I'm not even going to talk about his Hyperloop debacle, which is now basically a hyper circle. Um, yeah. So again, people who have been really hyped up as being uh, geniuses who, when you really look at them, are not at all so much. Anyways, uh, <laughs> let's take a break from um, bagging on uh, 
Elon Musk. And when we come back, we're going to talk about someone awesome instead. Um, <laughs> and then we'll talk about some other things. So please stay tuned. Uh, just going to do some PSAs and some show promos. And then I will be back in a few minutes. So please do hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. All right, so we are back. And I, like I promised, we're going to talk about someone way better than Elon Musk. <laughs> And so uh, let us talk about an amazing pioneering woman in computer science. 
So the Intrepid Museum in New York City, uh, which I had never heard of before, uh, <laughs> but it sounds good. Uh, they have kicked off a summer celebrating the Apollo missions by honoring software engineer Margaret Hamilton. They are awarding her their Lifetime Achievement Award. And so Hamilton was the chief programmer responsible for the computers on both the command and landing modules of the Apollo 11 mission. And in fact, she was such an early pioneer of computer programming that she actually coined the term software engineer. <laughs> so yeah, she's pretty excellent. Uh, her and... Um, Grace Hopper and some other amazing women, uh, the women from um, Hidden Figures, uh, who are, you know, real people, read the actual biographies of them. Um, I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but the, the white savior Kevin Costner character was a little annoying. Uh, but anyways, the software experience itself was at least as exciting as the events surrounding the mission, Hamilton said during her acceptance speech at the awards ceremony. As developers, we had the opportunity of a lifetime to make every kind of error humanly possible. Now, of course, <laughs> they obviously tried to work out all of those mistakes and errors before the mission started. Astronauts' lives were at stake. It had to work the first time, Hamilton said. Not only did it have to be ultra-reliable, it would need to be able to detect an error and recover from it in real time. Problems had to be solved that had never been solved before. So, very cool. Now, of course, there was one small exception. Everything was going perfectly, she says. Walter Conkright was reporting on the mission in great detail. And then all of a sudden, something totally unexpected happened. Just as the astronauts were about to land on the moon, the software's priority displays interrupted the astronauts' normal mission displays and replaced them with priority alarm displays to warn them there was an emergency. Now, it turned out that there was a, just a misaligned switch, and so the astronauts were actually able to fix that and therefore were able to move on with their mission, which allowed Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to become the first men to set foot on the moon. Now, one of the big things about um, just... Let's have an aside for a second. One of the big issues that a lot of uh, conspiracy folk like to talk about is the uh, reason why we haven't gone back to the moon. Why can't we just go back to the moon? We went to the moon with these really, really primitive um, uh, spacecraft that had incredibly primitive computers on them. And now we have all these fancy dancy things. And why can't we do that? Well, part of that is exactly baked into the fact that these were incredibly, incredibly simple and basic computers. And in fact, a lot of the computer switches and a lot of the actual uh, sort of internal guts of these systems, they weren't the way that they are today. They were actually using physical switches. They were using actual uh, physical objects that now we use as code or uh, using software. They actually had 
there were there was so much more analog things happening in these computers than happen today. And so when you have an actual physical object, uh, when you have a switch that you can actually look at and maneuver, that's a completely different thing from having, uh, you know, an iPhone that if it malfunctions, you can't just go, you can't just take the top off and move some stuff around <laughs> and fix it. You have to, you know, run diagnostics and do all of these things and look at the software generally. And sometimes it's a physical thing inside of the actual computer or the phone or whatever. But a lot of times it's not. And so um, if you ever look at, uh, if you ever see sort of a display about the actual, what was inside of those computers, it's all crazily analog. Um, you know, it's just fascinating to see all of the stuff that they did with actual physical items, which of course were also much more resistant to things like radiation. Your cell phone, uh, your laptop is a lot more sensitive to radiation than something that's made out of metal and cloth. <laughs> And so, you know, that sounds silly, but it is. And so that's why for a long time, we haven't done these things. It's because even though our technology has improved in leaps and bounds, it's improved along a line that actually makes it harder to do those sorts of things than it was when we were using, you know, literal uh metal and cloth and metal and chains and things that were, you know, very, very analog. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't realize that they haven't actually looked uh, into what was inside of these spaceships and inside of these computers. There's a reason that they were the size of rooms, these computers, because there was a lot of physical stuff inside of them. Uh, you know, all of the transistors and all of the, um, you know, switches and everything that was in them was just physical things in a way that they just aren't anymore. Um, okay, so enough of that aside. Uh, and so um, Hamilton actually also discussed her work prior to the Apollo mission, noting that she started her career uh, in computer science by developing programs to better predict the weather. She also mentioned her work with MIT's Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, or SAGE project, uh, which apparently was to help military, the military detect enemy planes. And apparently this computer was quite the beast. She's, she describes it in, in pretty amazing detail. The machine was huge. If your program crashed, the computer would tell you with siren-like and foghorn-like sounds throughout the building that everybody could hear and flashing lights that everyone could see, Hamilton said. Everyone would come running to find out who the guilty one was. We used a Polaroid camera to take a picture of the bug together with the person who caused it. Now, I think that's pretty hilarious. And of course, remember, we talked about uh, Grace Hopper recently and uh, the origin of the word bug, which, again, talking about physicality in these old computers, the original bug was literally a moth <laughs> that was found in the computer. Um, so yeah, definitely a different, very different thing from what we have today. 
Now, Hamilton is actually still an active programmer. Uh, she's currently working on a system that prevents errors before they occur, rather than needing to fix them after the fact. And the work actually builds on that work done on the Apollo program to make sure that the astronauts were able to perform their mission with precision and success. Errors, she notes, however, were important and are still important to the way that software is developed. And by extension, kind of everything else, because, you know, these speeches are always about uh, trying to inspire people. <laughs> the errors showed us what to do and where to go, each holding answers to questions we had not thought of asking, she noted. They told us how to exist without them. And so, yeah, congratulations to one of the many women who were cru crucial to the early development of computers and who have started to be much better remembered than they have been in the past. Uh, so uh, the next time some tech bro or, uh, you know, some person who tells you that, you know, men are just better at technology, uh, remind them that computers pretty much wouldn't exist without the hard work of many pioneering women. Um, and so, yeah, most of the early pioneers of computer science were women, uh, including Ada Lovelace, uh, all the way back at the beginning of the idea of a computer. Um, Babbage had an idea of how to make the physical thing, but it was Ada Lovelace who figured out how you would create programs to actually make it work. Okay, so let us switch gears pretty much completely. <laughs> uh, let's move on from space and computers and things like that to talk about fruit. <laughs> In fact, one of my favorite kinds of fruit, the apple, which has been a part of the human diet as a domesticated crop for at least 2,000 years uh, in Southern Europe, and which humans have been eating as a wild version for more than 10,000 years in Europe and West Asia. Now, I don't know about you, but hopefully if you're a New Englander and especially someone from Western Mass, you like a good apple. Um, I like a tart, crisp apple. Um, <laughs> uh, Macauans or Macoons, depending on how you pronounce it. That's one of my faves. Um, and so, yeah, I like an apple that has a good, hearty crisp when you bite into it and has a bit of a bite. That is my preference. I know other people have other preferences, but um, but yeah. So we've known for a while uh, that the domesticated version owes its origin in part to the Silk Road, the trade route that crossed the Eurasian continent connecting China and East Asia to Europe. And so at least four wild apple populations form the base of the domestic apple's genetic tree, and they can all be traced back to the Tian Shan Mountains in Kazakhstan, which was actually an important link in the chain of the Silk Road. Now, as one of my many asides, I just like to say that uh, I could actually do an entire month of shows on the Silk Road and barely scratch the surface of all the interesting things associated with it. So I highly recommend reading more if you're not familiar about uh, the Silk Road, uh, the Taklamakan Desert, all of those things um, that were so vibrant and alive. Again, this is another sort of thing where this was a place where there was a lot of um, civilization and a lot of peoples living there. And then climate change drastically changed how the um, landscape 
was able to be uh, used. And so now you have, for instance, the Taklamakan Desert, uh, where there used to be an actual like kingdom of people. Um, and so, yeah, it's another thing much like um, the Sahara, which um, I'm hoping to get to tonight or if not uh, next week, um, talk about how the, the Sahara um, was different as well. I did that a little bit. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I talked about that during Livy in Desert Glass. But my last uh, story for tonight is technically about um, Africa as well. So I'm getting a little bit uh, cross-linked there. Sorry. Okay, so getting back to this, <laughs> a new study by Robert Spengler of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History uh, and colleagues looked at the process that created those wild apples that have led modern apples to become a staple in diets all over the world. And of course, again, specifically here in the Pioneer Valley. Uh, also, I should give a shout out to all the amazing people making uh, hard cider in the valley. Uh, I have several bottles at home right now, uh, sitting on a shelf waiting for a uh, special occasion. And so, yeah, um, also, that is a deep tradition here in the valley as well. Now, before humans arrived on the scene, the fruits would have, of course, required other animals to, to disperse their seeds. And so fruiting plants uh, specifically create that fruiting body. So that apple is, of course, the sort of uh, bait around the seeds that are in the center uh, to lure creatures that are mobile uh, to the tree or plant in order to list those mobile creatures into dispersing their seeds further than could be done if they simply dropped them or let them be taken up by the wind uh, generally. And so many plants in the family to which apples belong, uh, rosacea, have small fruits such as cherries, roses, raspberries, and those are easily dispersed by birds, which is, you know, a pretty fan favorite um, dispersal method for a lot of uh, plants. They use birds because birds, of course, are very good at dispersal. Um, however, apples, along with pears, quince, and peaches, evolved fruits that were too big for avian dispersal. They relied on a different animal set of animals altogether, ancient megafauna. Now, the most famous example of this relationship is a currently in a currently enjoyed fruit is, of course, the avocado. Avocados evolved when animals like giant ground sloths uh, roamed the Americas and were able to swallow and disperse those extremely large seeds we still find in avocados today. So, you know, if you've ever looked in an avocado pit, the only thing that's eating that and, uh, you know, dispersing it out into the world uh, through digestion is going to be some sort of very large animal. And so in Eurasia, the megafauna for apples and other large fruits would have been wild horses and large deer. Now, the team boosted their hypothesis with evidence from the past 10,000 years, which is, of course, the period since the giant megafauna actually went extinct in Eurasia. So after the last ice age, no more megafauna, unfortunately, because a lot of them seem really cool. Uh, no, not so much cave bears and <laughs> some of those things, but, you know, not so much uh, Smilodon, but I wouldn't mind seeing a giant ground sloth. I'm not going to lie. Okay, so little wild apples, um, little wild apple dispersal can actually be traced during this latest epoch, which means that they're 
basically there hasn't been a lot of dispersal of apples in a natural way that would be from actual animals rather than human beings moving them around um, and doing that sort of thing. And they actually found that prior to the last ice age, there was a lot of evidence of dispersal of the seeds. But again, since that ice age, they really haven't expanded their territory uh, in any really meaningful way. Now, of course, once humans came on the scene again, uh, we took over and started to create that apple that is so familiar and beloved today. Uh, large fruits with specific traits like hardiness, uh, specific taste profiles, uh, the ability to travel without rotting or bruising, those sorts of things. And so hybridization created the first viable apples uh, that we would have eaten. Uh, but of course, most apples today are actually uh, grafted. So it's a really interesting process. Um, if you don't know, uh, basically, um, and it can be like, you can you can graft like almost three different plants together. So uh, you'll often have one plant that is really good for rootstock, and then you'll put another plant You'll graft a plant onto that that's good for uh, the actual apples. And sometimes I think they also will add another plant that's good for, you know, disease resistance for, you know, the leaves or something like that. It's crazy. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's it's a really interesting um, way in which apples are grown today. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, planting the seeds in the ground and growing apples, because even if you have a particular kind of apple that you really like, and you try to put those seeds in the ground. Um, unfortunately, apples are what's called heterozygous, um, which means that they uh, they don't breed true, so to speak. So, um, if you were to plant an apple, uh, the the amount, the you know six or eight seeds in an apple, you could potentially get six or eight different kinds of apple uh, that grew from those seeds, and of course as a uh, flowering tree, as a fruiting tree, it takes a long time uh, to go from seed to mature apple tree that can actually give you apples. And it might turn out that none of those apples is actually delicious. Um, so, you know, people have improvised and they created this incredible thing um, called grafting. Um, and of course, we've got plenty of apple trees around here, but there's a really cool um, example of a of two trees being grafted together at the um, Smith College, um, right by the actual um, greenhouse at Smith College. So in that sort of little back, um, sort of right by the rock garden, where there's all the um, sort of uh, succulents and things like that, there's this crazy tree. And you can see that it's actually two trees that were fused together, that were grafted together at some point, probably like over a hundred years ago. And you can see that it's very distinctively two trees that were put together. Um, and I always find that tree very fascinating. Um, it's such a trip to look at because it's, it's so clearly two different trees. Um, so yeah. Um, but anyways, <laughs> and so one of the cool things about this is actually that, you know, we know a lot about the domestication of grains, rice and wheat and millet and, um, you know, things like that. 
But there's a lot of other things that we eat, um, a lot of other plants that we've domesticated and eat uh, that we can now go to a grocery store and buy that we don't know as much about how those were domesticated. Um, you know, gourds and, uh, you know, all sorts of other things like that. Um, and of course, we have created all sorts of amazing things, uh, you know, from single plants. So like, you know, the ancestors of wild mustard are now, I think like six or eight different things, maybe more. Um, so broccoli, cauliflower, broccolini, uh, actual mustard greens, um, Brussels sprouts, um, maybe not Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts, I think are more cabbage, but I think, um, but anyways, <laughs> um, I know that broccoli, uh, broccoli, cauliflower and broccolini and, uh, mustard are all connected. I know there's some others that I can't think of offhand. Um, and so those were all domesticated from the same, uh, genetic ancestor. So of course, you know, that's one of those things about uh, when people cry about genetically modified organisms and uh, things like that. And of course, I again, as I was scrolling through something yesterday, saw the idea that uh, when you quiz people, sometimes um, when people are quizzed about whether or not all foods have uh, DNA in them. Some people will say that only genetically modified foods have DNA in them, which makes me sad. Um, but, you know, we just have to keep going out there and uh, trying to educate people as best we can. And, um, you know, I always, I feel very frustrated about the uh, issues with genetically modified organisms, because as someone who is a natural uh, leftist, anti-corporatist, I want to agree with people who say that, you know, these big ag companies are terrible and awful, and clearly they're doing something bad. But I also see that people need to be fed. And, um, you know, there's a lot of genetically modified organisms that are have been created by non-corporate entities that are trying to give people vitamins, that are trying to save uh, plants that are an integral part of uh, communities like the papaya in Hawaii. And um, it's really frustrating because um, it gets overshadowed by this knee-jerk reaction to, um, you know, corporations and this sort of weird neo uh Ludditism that seems to be very popular these days. Um, and, you know, for me, it's just all about continuing to try and push against that. Um, so we're not going to get to talk about uh, the domestication of uh, animals in Africa uh, tonight, which was going to be my last story. So if you're interested in that, uh, please do stay tuned and uh, for civil politics tonight and then come back next Friday and we'll lead off with talking about some interesting new studies on uh, not only uh, the idea of how um, pastoralism spread through Africa, but talk about some issues with uh, doing that data because in getting that data because of the uh, problem with the uh, biases in our genetic databases. All right, so again, that's all I have time for tonight, but um, I am very happy to have spent this hour with you, and please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. 
For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.